what I'm finding in these three gifts for the kings is it just seems to me like the Lord brings these opportunities to us as a church community that we get to take part in and to do something. And you know, sometimes you think, well, it's not much and it's just a little bit. But you know, it's, it, it is a lot for these children. It is a lot for the St. Mark's kids. It is a lot. So, so these are things that I just feel like they just give us an opportunity to do something just kind of uh, different. And uh, I just am very excited about uh, where we're going to be going with our three gifts uh, this coming uh, Christmas Eve. So um, I hope you'll participate in that and join us in that because I think it's a I think all three of those are really important, but uh, I, I mean, I'm just trying to transition from that, <laughs> right? It's just, heesh. I mean, this is a huge thing, the burdens that families carry. But we get to be part of helping. Might not be a lot, but it'll be something, right? All right, now I'm going to try to transition here. <laughs> Anyways, we'll see what we can do here. Um, it's easy in life to get down a, a bunny trail, right? It's easy to get distracted. Somebody gave me an illustration a long time ago, and it was really helpful. Uh, because we have only so much physical, you know, during the day. We only have so much energy, right? And sometimes at the end of the day, you go, man, I'm just exa physically exhausted. But more likely, many of us are emotionally exhausted. And somebody gave me this illustration. It was really helpful to me. They said, here's what you need to do. You need to wake up every day and picture, hopefully you can do this, picture your emotional bathtub is full. Okay? It's full. But the problem with your tub is, like the older tubs, the cork, the thing that holds the water, doesn't really hold the water really well. So your, your water is leaking throughout the day. And that may come when somebody comes into your face or cuts you off or says something or whatever. Could be your family, could be your friends, could be your coworkers. And then you'll have some people who just kind of come and they just pull the cork out. <laughs> they just kind of start to drain your tub. And you have to acknowledge or you have to kind of come to a place where you realize that's not a good thing for me because I, my bathtub, if it's empty at 12 o'clock, I'm going to have a hard day, Right. So you have to say, okay, what can I do to put the, put the plug back in? What can I do to preserve that emotional energy that I need to carry out for the rest of the day? And when you start thinking of it that way, you start going, okay, I'm spending a lot of emotional energy here, and I need to have some for the rest of the day. So I've got to either walk away from this situation or turn this off. And where this comes in is this. I think there are things that we as Christians, just as people, we get so tuned into and so caught up in, and it just, it drains our emotional tank. And I don't think it's worth it. I, I really don't think it's worth it. And the passage we're going to, you know, we use phrases like major on the majors, get back on track, first things first. And, and, and so what I want to do is I want to say there's only a couple of things that in this life that you should say, this is a hill to die on. This is something that no matter how much emotional energy I have, it's worth pouring it all onto this because there's a lot of things that aren't. And, 
And we're going to talk about some really contemporary things that are going on in our culture right now that I think Christians are really pouring a lot of energy into. And I just think it's an absolute waste of their emotional energy and their time. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. I want to start reading at verse 13. And hopefully, from this passage, from these passages we're looking at, we'll find two what I want to call emotional drainers, things that drain our lives, things that they're hills that we die on every day, but they're not worth it. They're just not worth it. And, and, and let me uh, give you the first one, and then we'll read the passage. Well, let me read the passage first. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. So what the context of the gospel of Mark is, now, the religious leaders, they've walked away from Jesus, but they're going to try to find a way to get him. They want to get him. They want to get him caught up somehow. So they, they're going to bring these, these different groups to him, asking him difficult questions, unanswerable questions. And they're going to try to get him to mess up. So uh, let's look at the first one. Later, they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. <laughs> They're lying through their teeth. They, they, they don't believe that at all. And Jesus sees through it. You aren't, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance to the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? So it's, it's a black or white. It's yes or no. It's right or wrong, right? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and they asked, and he asked them, whose image is on this and, the, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to, back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they were all amazed at him. So the first point in your outline is that, that the, these things that we, the first hill that we should never die on is the hill of politics and nationalism. What do I mean by that? What do we know about the Herodians? The interesting thing, the Pharisees and the Herodians were very, they're very diff, they're quite different. The Pharisees wanted a Jewish king, and they were looking for a Jewish king to rule them. The Herodians were okay with Roman rule. So they were kind of against one another, but they came together because they had a common enemy. And many times common enemies bring enemies together, right? And so that's what's going on here. They were both against Jesus. Now, we're moving right now into a very political season uh, for our nation. The president of the United States was impeached this week, right? The process of impeachment was begun this week. And um, some people think that we are God's chosen people, the people of America. We Americans, some Christian Americans think we're God's chosen nation. Now, let me ask you a question. There were a lot of political parties around Jesus. Which party did he belong to? <laughs> he, he didn't belong to one. That's the answer. He wasn't a Herodian. He wasn't a Pharisee. He didn't belong to a political party. Now, what does the Bible teach us? Well, we know, many of you know this, but some of you may not. Philippians 3.20 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven. And as we eagerly await the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. And let's continue to remember that. Our allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom supersedes all others. 
We are first and foremost citizens of heaven. Now, this has implications. Let me give you a couple of implications this has, okay? It has political implications, meaning can you love and accept people as brothers and sisters in Christ if they affiliate with a different different political party? Are they the enemy? We live in a culture today where political parties look at the other party and say, they're the enemy. We watch TV, and you can say CNN, MSNBC, Fox, and you say, what are those people saying? The other side is the enemy. They're the enemy. Everyone's the enemy. And I'm just sorry, but as I look at, at our world, what do, what do we really want from our politicians? We want them to work together for the good of everyone. And sometimes that means they're going to have to compromise. I don't know how they're going to work it out, but they're, they're, there's a lot of division here. My point is this. They are not the enemy. Don't fall for the lie that, this, that if somebody holds a different political view from you, they're the enemy. They're not an enemy. They hold a different political view. It has global implications. And I would love to do a whole sermon on this, but I don't have time. Do we, do, does God love America more than every other nation on this planet? Some of you are thinking, of course he does. Well, if you do, you better read your Bible. No. <laughs> and we, be, you know, some Americans, American Christians think God loves us best. Now, I, listen, I, I, I have five brothers. And there was a point where I, I could have said, yeah, mom and dad love me best. And that would be kind of a figment of my own imagination because my brothers probably thought the same thing. But it wasn't true, I don't think. And if you're a good parent, you realize that you love your kids equally. You don't love one kid more than another. God doesn't. God loves the world, it says in the Bible. Not, not, not a country, not a nation. So let's be careful about this American nationalism. Because what I see today in Christianity is American nationalism has become this more important than our citizenship in heaven. I'm concerned about that. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your citizenship, you may be an American, but your primary citizenship is in heaven, not here on earth. And, and we're called, and, and we look at this, we're called ambassadors for Christ. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador lives in a foreign country representing his homeland. So if we're ambassadors for Christ, doesn't matter if we live in China, doesn't matter if we live in South America, doesn't matter if we live in America, doesn't matter if we live in Venezuela, it doesn't matter because we may be citizens of that nation, of that country, you know, but we're called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ because our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Do we understand that? I mean, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sift out where we're pouring out all this emotional energy saying, well, he's right, he's wrong, They're, they did this, they did this. And I'm just saying, is this worth it? Is this really solving anything? Is this worth your energy to pour all your energy and get all worked up and get all angry about this and, and divide over these things? Is that really the most important thing? This has eternal implications. Heaven is not a democracy. In heaven, we're going to be subjects of a, a, of a, of a, a monarchy. We are going to have the king. We are going to be his subjects. And the implications for us today is that we're called to live in, like ambassadors for Christ and citizens of heaven. 
so that's, that's politics. Politics and nationalism. You know, you're going to see this more and more, and you're going to be drawn into it. You're going to be pushed to be drawn into it. People are going to say, what side are you on? What do you party do you belong to? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And you can get into those discussions. I'm not saying just those. You, you have to decide for yourself. All I'm saying is I only have so much energy to put into it. And I know that if I want to put my energy into it, the hill to die on is not nationalism politics. That's not the hill to die on. Let me give you another one that we die on. The hill of prophecy and end times. So uh, jump down to your passage. Uh, this is uh, verse 18 of chapter 12. The Sadducees who said there was no resurrection came to, with him, to him with his question. Teachers, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a, man, a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the, the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but also died, leaving no child. The same for the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? So that's the question they asked Jesus, right? So he's, they've got, and this is, this, this is all Old Testament where the, the women were supposed to be cared for and so that you had a, a family responsibility and all that. So they, they create this scenario. And my question, really, the question I would have asked is, what's going on with this woman? She seems to be losing husbands like nobody's business. I, I think we ought to investigate her first and foremost. To me, that's the question to answer. <laughs> but Jesus replied, notice what he says to them. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, Jesus does something really significant here, and you have to understand what's going on here. The Sadducees basically held to uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and they were, they were authored by Moses. So basically what Jesus does is Jesus takes a quote. He, he basically takes a teaching from the book, books of Moses. And, and notice what he says. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, he's saying, I, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God. He says, I am the God. And, and he says, I am the God of the living, the God of the dead. Now, here's the thing. The Sadducees rejected the uh, resurrection. Uh, they, they didn't believe in resurrection because they only accepted the first five books, and they felt like the, the resurrection was not taught in the Pentateuch. Well, Jesus basically says, well, here it is right here. It's a tense thing here. I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. They're still alive. That's his point. And so they asked this phony made-up question, this scenario. Um, they come, uh, it's a contrived case study about a widow. Uh, they show, they try, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to show from their perspective, the improbability that there is a heaven because it creates all these other issues. So it can't be true, logically. And Jesus, of course, uh, shot them down. And uh, they asked the question, well, whose wife will she be? And Jesus 
of course, held to the resurrection because he speaks of his own, his own uh, resurrection. Now, what, what application does that have for us today? Well, very simply this. I have found that Christians love uh, when pastors do series on prophecy and end times. I mean, they, they love that. And you'll see preachers, they'll do this all the time. It seems like every time you turn around, they're always doing a series on end times. They're always doing a series on prophecy. And is there prophecy in the Bible? Absolutely. But here's what they want to know. They want to know, well, who's the Antichrist? Um, they want to know, well, what's the mark of the beast? They want to know, are these the last days? They want to know that. And there's books written and all this stuff, and everybody's all bent out of shape about this stuff. And um, they just love this. And I think one of the reasons they love it is because they can talk, it's really going in its speculation. So it really doesn't have to deal with me. When you see prophecy, when you see the prophets in the Old Testament, when they're talking, they're basically saying, you need to get your act together. You need to get your life together. When, when you get done reading one of the prophets, you basically come to a place where you say, I need to repent because God's justice is coming, and if I'm not ready, I'm dead. That's the way you ought to walk out, not, well, I don't know if I agree with that point about the mark of the beach, the beast uh, um, and, and all these other arguments. We define ourselves in, in evangelical Christianity as pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill. We're pre, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, pre, uh, post-wrath. Some of you are thinking, what in the world are you talking about? I have no idea what that, any of that means. Good for you. <laughs> you see, Jesus hasn't told us when he's coming back, but he's told us how we're to live while we wait for him to come back, right? Somebody said a while ago, and I love this statement, they said, we're not part of the planning committee, we're part of the welcoming committee. (laughs) It's not our job to worry about when he's coming, our job is just to be ready when he comes. So so those are, to me, two things that Christians throw a ton of energy into. Politics and nationalism and and end times and prophecy, they, they just want to speculate, speculate, speculate. Let me give you some more. So this is where I'm going to get myself in trouble. And some of you are going to get upset with me. And I'm not doing it for, so that you'll get upset with me. I hope you know that's not what I try to do. But these are issues that I think, to me, they're not in our doctrinal statement. Even though many Christians think they're the hill to die on. What I'm saying is... Politics and nationalism is not a hill to die on. Prophecy and end times being right or wrong in that area is not a hill to die on. Okay? And let me, give you, let me give you some more. Are the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit for today? Are speaking in tongues and, and healing and all these other things supposed to be for today? Are they? Or are they not? Do we have a free will or is God sovereign? And how do those work together? I mean, you can go round and round and round and round and round on those. But you know, in the end, it's not the hill to die on. Are there seven literal days of creation? Or did God use great periods of time? Some of you are going, 
how dare you? Because we have Christians. We have one particular Christian in group that says, if you don't hold to a literal seven days, you don't, you're not holding to the authority and inspiration and infallibility of Scripture. Baloney! That's absolutely not true. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Some people say you can. Some people say you can't. This one is really personal to me. Are the Buffalo Bills the Cinderella team of the NFL? <laughs> now, just to, so you know my dedication, they are playing right now, the New England cheater Pat Patriots, and I have no idea what's going on, but don't tell me because I don't really care. <laughs> my point is this. There are so many hills that people, Christians, die on, and they get divided, and they throw this emotional energy. And Jesus says there's only one hill to die on. And here it is. Let's look at it. All right, so last part of our passage. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. The hill of two great commands is the hill we die on. That's the hill that is the most important. Now, notice the first two, the Pharisees and the, Sa and the Sadducees and the Herodians, they come, and they're insincere. They're just trying to trip Jesus up. But this next person comes, and they actually come with a better, in, better um, intentions. Look at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them good, a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You see what's going on here? Jesus is essentially saying, Yeah, that's the hill to die on. That's it. That's the bottom line. Everything else is not important compared to this. And what Christians do, they, get, they, tend, to, they tend to get distracted. So um, I want to just, this is the last part of your outline. I want to give, I want to ask, how do these two simple commands, and they're simple to understand, they're hard to do, okay? How do these two simple commands direct our lives? Well, let me give you four points. I think I have four points there. You can't love your neighbor without loving God. Notice in Mark it says, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And uh, this is really a reflection of the Shema passage. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4, we have the Shema, which Jesus just basically uh, quoted to this man who asked him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That word, the Hebrew word for hear is Shema, okay? And so that's why they call it the Shema passage. Let me read it to you. Here, this is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Jesus adds the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the question is, what is he saying? In other words, we are to love God with all that we have and all that we are. Every part of us, physically, emotionally, mentally, every part of us, 
We're not to hold anything back. We're to throw everything into this relationship. This is it. This is the game. This is what it's all about, loving God and loving our neighbors. And those two go together. And, and that's why the second point is this. You can't love God and not love others. <laughs> There's Christians out there, and I know I've been harping on this a little bit, but I want to make it clear. You cannot say that you love God if you don't love others. You can't say it. John says, essentially says this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brothers or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So this is a non-negotiable. If you say you love God, you can't, you can't delineate. You can't say, well, I, don't, I just love God. I don't love others. Um, the point is we can't claim that we love God if we don't love others. In fact, I believe it's the main way we show our love for God by loving others. Now, here's the thing. What I see many Christians doing today, and this is the whole politics thing, is I see hatred. I see just awful things written and, and said. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. It says love your enemy. If they're your enemy, if they are your enemies, you're supposed to love them anyways. You're supposed to treat them with dignity and respect. You're supposed to show the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love, joy, peace gentleness, kindness, right, goodness, all those different things. We're supposed to, to do that. And, and so I don't get this. I don't get how Christians can say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just caught up in this thing and I'm acting like not, not a Christian, uh, but I still love God. And John, First John would say, really? Well, I don't think you can get away with that. I don't think that logically works. In other words, you can't love God and not love others. Number three, you don't get to limit who you are called to love. You know, it's easy to love people who are lovely and people who are nice to you, people who are kind to you, people who are gentle to you. People who, um, you, and Jesus, said, Jesus knew that. <laughs> and he basically told that parable that we wish weren't, wasn't in the Bible, but it is in the Bible, and it's called the Good Samaritan. And we don't know anything about the Good Samaritan uh, in our culture because we just think, oh, it was some poor guy that got beaten up by the side of the road and, then these, these holy people walk by and leave them. And then all of a sudden, this Samaritan comes. Well, if you're a part of the culture, that would be like, a, you know, think of your worst enemy as, as, a, as a person. And they're the ones that show kindness and gentleness and help. And, and they, they bandage the wounds and they pay the bills. And they come in and do what you should have done, but they do it. That's the Samaritan. And so that's why Jesus, I mean, when he's telling this story, everybody's going, I got you, with you, with you. And then a Samaritan comes along and they go, what? No, not a Samaritan. They're our enemies. No, no, no. This Samaritan took this guy and bandaged his wounds and took him to an inn and paid for his bills and told the guy, if you, raise, if you, if you need more money, don't worry, I'll take care of it when he comes back. Just make sure he's okay. And when he told this, people's jaws dropped because they go, no, they're the enemy. And Jesus says, no, they're not. Because the question he was asked was, who am I supposed to love? 
And Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. We don't get to weed out the people we want to love and the people we don't want to love. Uh, we are to love the unlovely, the person we least admire, those who have hurt us, probably some family members, one, uh, ones who have done, we have nothing in common with, people we dread, our enemies. We're to love them. Jesus says, you don't get to choose who you, are, you get to love and who you don't get to love. Number four, you can only really love by following the example of Jesus. You see, this is... You say, well, this is impossible. You're right. It absolutely is impossible. You can't do this on your own power. It only comes when you are engaging with the cross. It only comes when you are understanding how he loved you when you were his enemy, when you weren't, when you weren't uh, a friend of his. And Paul uh, kind of talks about that in Romans 5, 8. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us since we have now been justified by his blood. How much more? Shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God's enemies, we, if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? His, Paul, Paul's point is we weren't his friends when he died. We were his enemies. Even Jesus on the cross, what was the words he, he said? Father, forgive them. My enemies, for they don't know what they're doing. See, my point is this. We can only do this, we can only show this kind of love uh, for those who are unlovely, those that we would say, well, they're our enemies, because Jesus demonstrated this kind of love for us. And when we embrace how we were loved by him, then we have the power and the desire to love others in the same way. Otherwise, we can't do this. It's a hurdle we'll never get over. We begin to find the reason and the power to love because we understand how much he loved us when we were sinners, when we were enemies. That's the point. God loved us when we were unlovely, when he, we were his enemies. We turned our back on him. His love is, was complete and total. He gave his very uh, life so that we could live. The point is this, since we have been loved like this, we're to love others in the same way. This is the way that we are to live our life. This is the way that we are to love God. This is the hill we die on. This is it. Nothing is more important than loving God with everything we have and everything we are and loving others. Nothing in life is more important than that. Nothing is more important. I don't care if you have your theological degree, and you have an incredible understanding and knowledge of the Bible. The Pharisees did. They knew a lot about the Old Testament. They're the ones telling Herod about Jesus and his birth, who he's going to be. They knew the Bible. doesn't matter if you know the Bible. The question is, are you a person that's characterized by someone who loves God with everything that you are and everything you have, and you love your neighbor as yourself? And you understand how much he loved you, and that motivates you to love others. Here's the point. In the end, if we call ourselves Christ followers, we, we willingly choose to die to ourselves because he chose to die on a hill. We call it Calvary, right? That was the hill to die on. He died on Calvary. 
And that's the hill we always have to go back for and say, that's the hill. That's, and you say, well, why did he die? Because I was a sinner, because I needed a Savior. Okay, so, so that's my motivation. So every other relationship has to go to a place where I understand what he did for me, and then I can take some of that grace, some of that mercy, some of that, and I can, and I can, I can bring it into my life, and I can give it out to others who don't deserve it, who will never thank me for it. There's a lot of, you know, we only have so much, so many days and so much energy and so much time. And Jesus says, let's focus on the majors. Let's determine the hill to die on. Jesus said, I chose Calvary to die on because it was my mission. I healed people. That wasn't my hill to die on. I taught. That wasn't my hill to die on. It was an important thing. But the thing that I did, I came to do, was to give my life. And, and that's, isn't that this, you know, Jesus, Mary's told you name him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. Jesus says to his disciples, we read about it a couple weeks ago, he then told them how he would go into Jerusalem, how he would be uh, abused, mistreated, executed, be, he would be crucified and uh, buried, and three days later he would rise up. You see, this, this is the hill to die on. This is what it's all about. And it's easy for us, too easy for us Christians to get distracted. What would happen if we left this place today and said, my goal this week is to love God with everything I have and everything that I am and to love my neighbor? The way the parable of this good Samaritan says to love my neighbor. Well, Christians would be characterized, and they wouldn't be characterized because of political views they have. They wouldn't be characterized because of nationalistic views they have. They wouldn't be characterized because of end times views they have. They wouldn't be characterized because of views they have about the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't be characterized for a lot of different reasons. They would just be characterized as people who love God and people who show unexplainable love for people that don't deserve it and they don't get it. But we're not. We have decided who we are as Christians. We've decided to define us by a political party, by nationalism, by all these other things. Story, and I'll close with this. There was a story on the news this week, and it was Christians, and uh, I think it was a two- or three-year-old daughter died, and they were praying for the girl's resurrection. Uh, I, I, the girl is going to be resurrected. But it made national news, and basically the world was laughing at these people. Now, could God raise this child from the dead? And they gave, and I don't have time to go in it, they gave a reference from Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and it was a verse taken out of context, absolutely taken out of context. And we look like idiots. We look like we're mindless idiots. And I've always said, I hope that my life is characterized when the relationships and the people I meet, that people can say, I can't, I can't just dismiss Christianity or make a caricature of Christianity because I met somebody who really is thoughtful and really believes and really lives the life 
that it seems like Jesus was talking about. But we can go down our bunny trails. We can choose the hills to die on. We can continue to do that. We continue to divide over when is he coming and all these other things. We can get, it, we can get caught up all in that stuff or we can do what Jesus said. There's one hill to die on. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Help us, Father, because uh, we know what we need to do, but there are many distractions. And there's really only one real focus that our lives should have. Should we know about some of these things? Of course. Should we think through those things? Of course. But are those the hill to die on? Are those the hill that should define us as people, as Christians, as your followers? I think you want us to be called citizens of heaven, ambassadors for Christ, your sons and daughters. May we uh, reflect the great commands that you've given to us today to love you with everything that we are and everything we have, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to do that, Father, this week and this coming year, especially as we get into a season where people are going to divide, choose sides, get nasty. May we not be part of the fray. May we step out and say there's only one hill that we need to look to. And let's look to the hill where your son chose to die. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.